Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we return to the Sydney Mini Maker Fair for more interviews, and because I have the flu, we'll revisit the science of Doctor Who and hold the news until next week. Back at the Sydney Mini Maker Fair, which was held on Sunday, November 24th at the Powerhouse Museum, valves are making a comeback. And Stephen, you've got this tube sound audio handmade hi-fi. That's correct. Yes, um, uh, our organisation, well, we do a couple of things. Uh, we will build valve amplifiers uh, to custom specification. Um, people are often very interested in the idea that they can have a piece of good-looking furniture as well as something that sounds excellent. So uh, that's one of the things we do. But we've also started uh, a workshop which we call Amp Camp. Uh, for those who've always wanted to build their own but didn't quite know how to start. So they can come and see us, they can, they can actually hear all the gear before they even start, which is a nice plus. Um, but uh, for those who sort of thought, oh, you know, maybe I could build this myself but I don't know how to get uh, started, what's involved, uh, they can come and enrol in AMP Camp and they will do project-based workshops where they will have success at the other end, which is one of the guaranteed outcomes, of course, just remove all the risk from the idea of building, you know, your own DIY amplifier. Are they all valve-based amplifiers? Yes, yes, yeah. And what's the attraction of valves in addition to the look? Well, the valve has always been regarded as having a very engaging sound, and in fact the reality is that it produces second-order harmonic distortions. Uh, and in the music sense, the uh, human ear finds that very pleasing, uh, which is one of the things that uh, has... Kept it in the niche area, you know, with the rise of solid-state circuitry in the uh, the 60s. Uh, then uh, valves sort of got pushed into uh, their own little niche. Uh, the guitarists, of course, never went away from the valve because they love the distortion that comes out of those. Um, but in the uh, in the hi-fi world, we've seen perhaps a return to interest, uh, uh, possibly related to the dropping of the Iron Curtain, because of course in Russia they never stopped making valves because they didn't have. Uh, the American solid-state uh, technology. Yeah, so that, uh, that basically meant that we all had much easier access uh, to the raw materials. Well, the other thing that, that we do at Tube Sound Audio is that we also manufacture a range of uh, loudspeakers uh, that are uh, high efficiency because the other thing about the valve is it doesn't produce a lot of output uh, compared to what we're used to, say, in the solid-state arena. So uh, we, we make a range of loudspeakers and we in fact specialise in large displacement loudspeakers, which again is a bit yesteryear in that sense. Um, our most popular uh, loudspeaker, for instance, uh, has a 15-inch uh, driver uh, and, a, and a box that's 228 litres, um, which in some respects makes it the interior decorator's uh, enemy, but certainly the quality of what's being produced there is a most engaging sound. Well, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. If you get a 3D printer for Christmas, you'll need some training that comes to you. That's where a workshop that pops up in your suburb comes in. I, my name is Lester Mata. I am a third of 40 Plus. We are 3D printing enthusiasts. 
spread out across Sydney. Uh, one of us from the north, from the south, and uh, from the west. Yeah, essentially, we love 3D printing. Ever since we have our machines, it kind of like halved our expenditure because we built and printed our own things rather than actually buying them. So it's quite good. And you're looking at putting on pop-up workshops. We are, yes. Whilst here at the Powerhouse Sydney Mini Maker Fair, uh, we're trying to see how much interest there would be out there in Sydney to uh, have pop-up workshops all across um, in different suburbs. We're aiming to essentially make it available to young kids and their parents, maybe something that they could do on the weekend, um, you know, like a, something to learn, science and technology. How could you go wrong? And so they'll actually be learning to design things that can be printed out? At the moment, we're trying to create the workshop so it's effectively how to uh, build and operate 3D printing machines. The design component, that's something that we could venture into a little bit later. Very technical and uh, you know really needs a creative mind. I'm sure there are a lot of creative kids out there. Uh, this is like half of the step at the moment uh, you know, where we're going with the 3D printing workshops. Because 3D printers, they're not essentially plug and play at the moment, the technology. There's a lot at play. It's like essentially having a factory at your house. So uh, with a factory, things can go wrong. If the temperature in the room is slightly different would, from day to day, it would effectively impact how you would actually set up the printer. Um, and it's one of those things where it's, it's like baking a cake, if I could use that as an analogy. You know, it's not just mix it all in in the, um, you know, in the pot and then throw it into the oven. It's effectively like looking, you know, looking at it each step of the way even though you know a print can range from half an hour to three hours but it's you know the creative process is it's challenging to say the least so that's what we're trying to uh, you know uh, teach people so you're teaching people the art of running a 3d printer as well as the technical side good word good word because it is an art uh, as much as it is a science it's not all just numbers and pressing buttons there is a particular art to it so effectively, that's what we are going to try to do. Um, try to show people exactly where we have failed ourselves because uh, ever since we started using these machines, we've, you know, the, lear the learning curve is quite steep. And how many different types of 3D printers are you showing people? Today, we're showing three different types of printers. Uh, we have a RepRap, a Delta, and a clone of the uh, Replicator, which is called the Creator. And the RepRap is the one that's made out of 3D printed parts? Yes, that's correct. Effectively, you can actually call it as a self-replicating 3D printing machines uh, because uh, besides the metallic parts and the electronics, um, a lot of the components of the pr printer is printable. So you effectively can print your own printers after creating them. Well. I don't know when you're going to hear this, but uh, if you can and um, the Sydney Mini Maker Fair is still open, I think that you should rush over. <laughs> Sadly, they, they'll hear the recording after the event. <laughs> Maybe next year. I think it's a success. Uh, there are 60 presenters today. I guess that's called Mini. Let's hope that there's a major, mini ma major Maker Fair Sydney coming soon. And if people want to find your workshops online, where should they look? Uh, we can, you can email us at info at 40plus, that's F-O-U-R-0-Z-E-R-O-P-L-U-S dot com. Uh, or you can like our Facebook page, 40plus, 
uh, Twitter at 40 plus. So, you know, there's lots of ways that you can contact us. Well, Lester, thank you very much. Thank you. At the fair, I saw a stand with a giant water and compressed air powered rocket. Uh, I'm George Knox. New South Wales Rocketry Association, that's right. And you've got water-powered rockets. We do both water-powered rockets and model rockets, so we use both water and solid fuel. Uh, I'm just talking about water rockets here today. And these water rockets are a bit bigger than the ones I'm used to seeing from the toys. Ah, uh, Yes, we've just never grown up. We've just uh, grow, uh, made them a little bit bigger, um, extended them, tried pushing the performance up as far as we can before they blow up. So how tall are these rockets? Uh, they're about three metres tall, are the tallest ones that we build. And they work by air pressure into water? Yep, so it just uses air pressure to store the energy and it uses the uh, water as the reactive mass. So the air acts onto the water, which gives it the, the acceleration. So how do you get the air into it to power it? Uh, so you can use uh, different air sources. You can use compressors, bottled air. We use a scuba tank, which is, uh, or you can use a foot pump, which is too much work, especially for some of the bigger rockets. So, um, so yeah, scuba tank's the easiest way. And how high do they go? Um, the little ones will go about 400 feet. Uh, the, the highest power ones that we build are over 1,200 feet. And what's that in metres? Uh, that's about 370 metres. 370 metres. And do you put payloads on the rockets? We do. We put on altimeters. We put on cameras. Um, sometimes we'll run science experiments um, to teach people about how rockets work. Uh, some of the payloads, yep. So we fly all, all different kinds of things. And where do you fly them? Uh, we fly them at Duneside. So a couple of times a month uh, we get together with the whole Rocketry Association and we'll fly them. And if people want to look on the web, where do they look for the Rocketry Association? Uh, just look for New South Wales Rocketry Association. We'll come up. <laughs> and are there any safety issues people have to worry about when the rockets are this big? Uh, yes, you, especially not the size of it. It's the, um, the pressure that's used. So you stand well back when it's being pressurised. No one comes near it. Uh, the rockets can land anywhere, so it doesn't matter if you stand 50 feet from it during launch. They can land several hundred feet away. So... It's always controlled conditions during these launches and people are always looking at the skies. And um, so when the rocket's coming down and does happen, comes down without a parachute, people are always aware and they can step out of the way. Uh, but it happens very rarely that, that rockets crash and, um, and it's always well away from people. So, Is it a park that you're in that when you launch? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a public park, but we have a special permission to fly there from the council. We've got... Uh, CASA permission, we've got permission from the uh, fire brigade, uh, we've got insurance, so all of that has to be in place before we, we do any launches. So, um, And it's limited access, so people can't just wander in off the, off the street, um, the locked gate, so it's quite a controlled environment. Well, George, thank you very much. Thank you. I'll be bringing you more interviews from the Sydney Mini Maker Fair next week. Look to diffusionradio.com for my gallery of photos from the fair. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now for the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, we return to April 2013 and the science of Doctor Who. (laughs) 
The Doctor is one of the few heroes of fiction who uses his intelligence and knowledge to solve crises instead of violence. The Doctor doesn't beat the bad guys up, he outthinks them. And he has some nice toys. Let's start with the TARDIS. A ship that travels through time and space, which is permanently disguised as a 1960s London police telephone box, and it's bigger on the inside. TARDIS is an acronym that stands for Time and Relative Dimensions in Space. This offers the clue. The TARDIS is a tesseract. A tesseract is defined as a four-dimensional hypercube. Just like you can draw two-dimensional squares on paper and fold them through the third dimension to make a three-dimensional cube, you can fold three-dimensional cubes through a fourth spatial dimension to make a four-dimensional hypercube a tesseract. In the case of the 3D cube made up of 2D squares, you could fit an infinite number of two-dimensional squares into the three-dimensional cube because the squares have no three-dimensional thickness. They're infinitely thin. So a cube is bigger on the inside from the perspective of a two-dimensional person from Flatland. Even if the squares had a very tiny thickness in the third dimension, you could fit a huge number of them inside your three-dimensional cube, even if it appears to be only made of six squares. In the same way, when you fold your eight cubes through the fourth dimension to make a hypercube, each of the cubes will have little to no thickness in the fourth spatial dimension. The hypercube TARDIS will appear bigger on the inside to three-dimensional people because you can stack a very large number of three-dimensional cubes into a four-dimensional space. So while the appearance of a British police phone box might be an illusion, being bigger on the inside is just a consequence of being folded through the fourth dimension, time and relative dimensions in space. Why a police telephone box? In 1963, there were no mobile phones, so police on foot needed a way to report back to base and request backup, so police-only telephone boxes were all over Britain. In the story, the chameleon circuit on the TARDIS is stuck, so it always appears as a police box, even when it's wrong for the time and place. A book I recommend for visualising things moving and being built in the fourth dimension is The Fourth Dimension and How to Get There by Rudy Rucker. The sonic screwdriver has been the Doctor's constant companion since it was introduced in 1968, and originally used as a tool for picking locks, sometimes to remotely detonate mines and probe things. In the 21st century, this seems like something we could almost build ourselves. Locksmiths and amateur lock pickers know you can pick many locks by shaking a pick inside them while twisting. If you could produce a sound matching the resonant frequency of the lock, mine or other gadget that you wanted to shake up or move a little, then you could make a primitive sonic screwdriver. You'd need to generate sound to order to focus the sound so you're only changing the thing you want to change and not everything around you, and you'd need a way for the device to work out what its effect was, to read what was happening. This might be a computer chip with a digital to analog conversion, and a speaker. Sound lenses exist, and the device could have a microphone for listening to sounds emitted by the target, in between pulses of sound from your screwdriver. So, 
If you're in a cell with a mechanical lock and you need to escape, you point your sonic screwdriver at it and it emits chirps of sound that are focused on the lock, sweeping from low frequencies to higher ones. When the microphone hears the same tone being echoed by the lock after a chirp, it knows the lock is vibrating because that tone is the resonant frequency of the lock. Just like an opera singer can sing a note that matches the resonant frequency of a wine glass, causing it to vibrate and shatter. The lock shakes, you turn the lock, and it opens. Making sound from a pocket device has been done for decades. Any pocket radio or mobile phone can do that, with well-understood electronics and a speaker. But how do you focus sound? Like with light, you can make a lens that focuses sound, and dolphins have a sound lens growing in the middle of their foreheads. A membrane filled with gas or liquid will mediate the sound, and the shape determines how the waves are affected. The sound waves bend because of the difference in the refractive index between the air and the material inside the lens. That is, the sound waves travel at a different speed inside the lens than they do through the air or water outside the lens. Doctors routinely use focused sound waves to blast apart kidney stones and prostate tumours. The problem is that the focal spot is a few centimetres, and they'd rather it was much more precise for surgery and imaging. Now, this might let you shake a lock up, but it wouldn't get the finer locks, and it wouldn't turn anything. The other technique might be to use a curved acoustic mirror, basically a parabolic dish, to focus the sound. Once again, this won't let you be very precise, and a pocket version won't reach very far. Physicists at the Longevin Institute of Waves and Images at the Graduate School of Industrial Physics and Chemistry in Paris built an array of 7x7 seven seven emptied soft drink cans. The array was surrounded by eight speakers. A pure tone was played through the speakers, with sound waves moving around and inside the cans, making them oscillate like organ pipes. The complex resonance patterns caused by the interference of the waves inside the cans caused sound waves of much smaller wavelength than the original to be emitted from the opening of the cans. They recorded the sound above a single can with a microphone and then played this sound backwards through the speakers. This had the effect of amplifying the sound from that one can and cancelling out the sound from all the other cans. As this one can sound resonates inside the can, the waves inside scatter into tiny waves and when they escape that can, they focus strongly on a spot a few centimetres long, which is many times smaller than the original sound wave. The researchers hope to be able to use this technique to make very sharp images with ultrasound, to look at tissues that are smaller than the wavelength of the sound we can generate. The array of cans is acting like a metamaterial. Metamaterials with a negative refractive index for light have been in the news for making things invisible by bending light around them. In acoustic metamaterials, the sound waves could be bent to focus them. A phononic crystal would be made of a metamaterial that bends light in such a way that we can focus the sound very precisely. At the University of Manitoba in Canada, they created a simple phononic crystal by immersing an array of 0.8mm tungsten carbide beads in water, precisely stacked in an arrangement that resembles oranges in a crate. When you play sound at 1 MHz frequency at the array of beads, it generates a sound wave that cancels the sound out, just like the negative sound with the Coke cans. 
and stops it getting inside the crystal. This anti-wave has lows where the original wave has highs, and highs where the other one has lows. And the result is silence. The frequency is set by the diameter of the beads. Now if you play sound that's higher than the forbidden 1 MHz frequency, you get stranger effects. At 1.57 MHz, the sound wave's bent towards a focal point just below the slab. Another approach is from the University of Michigan, where they're using sound lenses made from carbon nanotubes. The team was able to concentrate high amplitude sound waves to a spec just 75 by 400 micrometers, where a micrometer is one thousandth of a millimeter. Lead researcher Jay Guo hopes he can use the precise sound beam as an invisible knife for painless surgery. His idea is that the beam is so precise that the surgeon can avoid nerve fibres. Their technique is to convert light into sound. The researchers coated their sound lens with a layer of carbon nanotubes and another layer of rubbery material called polydimethylsiloxane. The carbon nanotube layer absorbs the light and gets hot. Then the rubbery layer, which expands when it's exposed to heat, drastically boosts the signal by quickly expanding from the heat. The rapid expansion generates a sound wave. In experiments, the researchers accurately detached a single ovarian cancer cell and blasted a hole less than 150 micrometres in an artificial kidney stone in less than a minute. Their paper, Carbon Nanotube Optoacoustic Lens for Focused Ultrasound Generation and High Precision Targeted Therapy, was published in the journal Scientific Reports. So how do you make sound turn things like a lock? In the American Physical Society's journal Physical Review Letters, Dundee University's Institute for Medical Science and Technology published a paper called Mechanical Evidence of the Orbital Angular Momentum to Energy Ratio of Vortex Beams about rotating focused sound beams. They created twisting ultrasound using a thousand element array of transducers. In tests, the device was able to lift and turn a rubber disc floating in water. If your cell is locked by a rubber disc floating in water, this is your tool. Their aim is for a medical device that could guide capsules around the body without surgery and manipulate individual cells. The research forms part of a UK-wide engineering and physical science research council project known as Sonotweezers, which aims to bring dexterity and flexibility to ultrasonic manipulation allowing applications in a wide range of topics, including regenerative medicine, which applies to Doctor Who, tissue engineering, developmental biology, and physics. When this all becomes pocket-sized and all comes together, this will let us build the first model sonic screwdriver. I have a question to ask you about sonic screwdrivers. Of course you can buy toy sonic screwdrivers. You can buy quite sophisticated toy sonic screwdrivers. How close do you think they might be to producing perhaps not something that looks like the doctor's sonic screwdriver, but um, something usable? It looks to me like with all of this research into metamaterials, mm. that 
they're going to get something that works reasonably soon for surgery. And Fantastic. things for surgery have to be at least handheld. It might be attached to a big device originally. Mm. But then it's just a matter of miniaturization, which we do pretty quickly these yeah. days. Exponentially almost. So it could be there in maximum 10 years, I reckon. Right. Um, of course, it's very difficult to put time frames on future predictions. It's very difficult to do. Plus, wait, it's physically possible, which is a big box to tick for yeah. this sort of thing. Lovely. And the beginnings of the technology, including being able to turn it in the Sono Tweezer project. Oh, I love that word. <laughs> I love that name, Sono Tweezers. I mean, if you can build a Sono Tweezer, then you can build a pocket Sono Tweezer. Right. I think. So I don't know what the time frame is. I have to look a bit further into that project and mm. perhaps try and access the paper that I referenced there yeah. more completely. Who knows? Perhaps they could do it in five, but I'd give them 10 at the outset. Fantastic. Oh, that's so exciting, Ian. Perhaps if you'd like to, if our listeners would like to, us to go into more detail about this. Write on our Facebook page, Diffusion Science Radio, and like us. Please. And Ed, are you on Twitter? I am, actually. What's your handle on Twitter? It's obviously the at sign, uh, a shorthand form of Roger That, R-G-R-T-H-T. So look for Ed on at R-G-R-T-H-T, and look for me at Ian Wolf on Twitter, and have a chat. Tell us what you'd like to hear. Yeah, I'd love to hear from you. We'd love to do things that you'd love to hear. <laughs> And the deep young voice asking questions at the end of the Doctor Who story is Ed Pollitt. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Next week, Stephanie Watson uses stem cells to heal damaged corneas to restore vision. Would you like to join the team? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Facebook page and leave some comments. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Coringai. We're syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com Diffusion currently lacks any kind of business model or funding. So please contact me at science at diffusionradio.com to suggest a business model, help with applying for grants, or if you'd like to sponsor the show. Or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice, for more science wondering, next week on Diffusion Science Radio.